From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Glaucoma 2.0, Part 1. Some of that may reflect dysfunction of those retinal ganglion cells and not yet death. First this. This year's ASCRS Annual Symposium was great. I learned a lot that I'm applying to my practice right now. If I have any complaint, it's that I couldn't get to all the sessions I wanted to because some of them overlapped. That's why I'm so excited about the new ASCRS Media Center. More than 1,300 sessions from that meeting are now available through this great new resource. See what you missed or revisit the most interesting sessions. The Media Center is free to all meeting attendees. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information. When I was a resident many years ago, glaucoma was a pathology that was simple to understand. Intraocular pressure caused damage to the optic nerve and, well, that was that. Now our understanding of glaucoma is much more nuanced. Indeed, elevated intraocular pressure is no longer even in the glaucoma definition, But the goal of therapy for glaucoma in 2012 is indistinguishable from glaucoma therapy of years ago. Sure, we have new medications, but all of these medications are anti-intraocular hypertensives. Why is that? If our understanding of glaucoma is so far separated from intraocular pressure, why is our therapy still mired in it? Jeffrey Goldberg introduces a new therapeutic paradigm for managing glaucoma that he calls Glaucoma 2.0. I will present his interview divided into two parts, and we'll hear part one today. I'm going to start out with the toughest question of all. What is glaucoma, and is it one single pathology or a collection of pathologies with a sort of final common pathway? That's a very good question, and it's a question that we've just begun to make some real progress on. First of all, we've identified glaucoma for a long time as a particular kind of optic neuropathy. It's a particular kind of degeneration of the optic nerve. It follows a very characteristic pattern or set of patterns. We lump those all into glaucoma, but we appreciate now more and more that it's probably not a single pathology. It's probably a collection of pathologies with a final common pathway. We know that a number of different insults can lead to, for example, elevated intraocular pressure. You can have inflammation in the eye that leads to it. There can be trauma that leads to it. You could just be born with a proclivity or predilection towards having high eye pressures. And any of those then can lead to the pathology in the optic nerve that we call glaucoma. But we also know that people who have what we would consider to be fairly normal eye pressures also get glaucoma. Some people with very low eye pressures get this characteristic optic nerve degeneration that essentially for all intents and purposes looks like and is glaucoma. So why are they different? Why do they get glaucoma at these lower pressures? Well, fundamentally what we've appreciated now, I think more than than ever, is that Fundamentally, glaucoma is the susceptibility to some sort of insult that may be eye pressure, and it's that 
susceptibility that we really don't understand and that it probably differs in different people. And that susceptibility is really the collection of pathologies that then leads to the degeneration, the common pathway of degeneration that we call glaucoma. On that same theme, we divide glaucoma into a number of categories that are distinguished by clinical criteria like like open angles or normal pressures. Do these clinical distinctions reflect different pathophysiologies? I think in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. Some of the clinical distinctions have something to do with how an eye gets very high pressure. So primary open angle glaucoma may have higher than normal pressures, higher than average pressures for a reason that we don't see or understand. Other situations like uveitic glaucoma may lead to scarring of the outflow pathways of the eye that leads to high pressure. And it's probably the case that most of the higher pressure glaucoma uh, and the clinical criteria that we divide those ones into, most of those higher pressures probably lead to fairly similar pathophysiologies in terms of the optic nerve's inability to survive or remain healthy through those high pressures. In other situations that you raised, like normal pressure glaucoma, it may be fundamentally very different pathophysiologies that lead to glaucoma. It may be in normal pressure or low pressure associated glaucomas, that there's different susceptibilities at the level of the optic nerve or at the level of the retinal ganglion cells and their axons that lead to the degeneration of glaucoma that we call glaucoma. So some of them, I think, are relevant distinctions and others may not be relevant at the level of pathophysiology, even though, of course, they're relevant in terms of how we might treat them clinically. Although elevated intraocular pressure is not part of the definition of glaucoma anymore, and although all types of glaucoma respond to intraocular pressure reduction therapy, is intraocular pressure reduction more important in some sorts of glaucomas than in others? That's a very interesting question and one that we probably just don't know the answer to. The And I'm going to return again to the the potential difference that may exist in some of the, quote, normal pressure glaucomas. The, the appreciation has certainly come to light that probably most normal pressure glaucoma is just an increased susceptibility in those patients such that their optic nerves can't even take the pressure that, let's say, the average person's eye can take. And for them, we know from the, for example, collaborative normal tension glaucoma study that as a population, if you reduce the intraocular pressure in that population, you can significantly decrease glaucoma progression. But it's not clear that in all patients, you can reduce progression to zero. And certainly, I would say probably all glaucoma doctors, I certainly have had this experience, um, have patients for whom you feel like, boy, you're reducing their pressure all the way to the bottom, all the way as low as this is plausible, and yet they're still getting worse. So it may be that for some patients, 
they're so susceptible to some insults that frankly may or may not even be intraocular pressure directly, that in those patients we really need intraocular pressure reduction to some degree, but we may really need something else that turns out to be more important. And until we figure out what that something else is, it's going to be hard to really know the answer to that question. I understand that in the majority of glaucoma patients, retinal ganglion cell loss is associated with elevated intraocular pressure. This is something that I learned as a as a resident. But but tell me, Jeff, how do we get from elevated intraocular pressure to ganglion cell death? That's another great unanswered question. There are a number of theories that have been explored for how pressure translates. And fundamentally, this question is at some level, a a molecular question. What is the molecular sensor or or cellular sensor that is detecting high pressure in some people's eyes and leading to the degeneration in the optic nerve and in the retinal ganglion cells that, that we call glaucoma? There have been a number of really excellent hypotheses. For example, there are molecular channels that are expressed by retinal ganglion cells and by the glial cells in the optic nerve, channels that actually respond to pressure or stretch or tension. Uh, other, other hypotheses have included the um, scleral opening in the back of the eye where the optic nerve comes out may be subject to particular stresses or strains at certain pressures that then lead to degeneration or reactivity um, that, that ultimately leads to dysfunction and then death. There's some thought that pressure can directly inhibit um, some of the molecular processes that take place inside cells, although the evidence for that is probably not as strong. This is a an area of, of really important need still at a basic research pathophysiology level. At what histopathological site is the cell death initiated? Well, that's a great question, and I want to distinguish, um, and I want to change your question a little bit, and I want to distinguish between cell death and dysfunction. We actually have some evidence now that there's dysfunction in retinal ganglion cells and in the connections through the optic nerve to the brain. There's dysfunction in those connections before there's actual death. And so, for example, when we see visual field deficits, some of those deficits might be because the retinal ganglion cells actually died in those locations in the retina, but some of that may reflect dysfunction of those retinal ganglion cells and not yet death. So I think a great question, if I can change yours, is at what histological site is cell dysfunction initiated and then cell death? And those two might be different. We know in glaucoma, because of the spread of the disease, the progression of the disease, because it follows some very specific anatomic correlates of the optic nerve head, we know that the progression of glaucoma has to do something with optic nerve head anatomy. And whether that's pre-laminar in front of the lamina or at the lamina cribrosa or just behind it, it has to be in that region. Now, 
something could be initiated there, but then for the cells to actually die, to degenerate and die, and sort of for the permanence of the loss, that may occur back at the cell body. And there's a lot of beautiful data suggesting that a lot of degeneration in synaptic transmission, the connections that retinal ganglion cells make with their neighbors in the retina uh, may play a role, um, as well as the uh, morphology or cell shape in the retina may play a role. Um, and, that, and so some of the steps may be critically located either back in the retina or even possibly where their axons terminate in the brain. Uh, but the progression progression we've really, I think the clinical data strongly supports that that has to be happening at the optic nerve head. Jeff, your, your, your paper was really, really great. And, and one of the new terms, uh, for, for me, new terms uh, that, that, I, uh, that I read there uh, was excitotoxicity. Can, can you tell me what that means? Absolutely. Excitotoxicity has been um, studied in a lot of degenerative neurodegenerative diseases, and the idea is that neurons normally talk to each other by exciting each other. They, they synapse on each other, connect to each other, they send signals to each other. One neuron talks to the next, which talks to the next, and that's how these signals get around the brain. And a lot of those signals are mediated by neurotransmitters that excite the next cell in line. And it was observed that if you give too much neurotransmitter, then it can actually be toxic for that next cell in line. And that was called excitotoxicity. It's the excitement of the neurotransmitter telling the next cell to, to get activated. But if it's too much, it can be toxic. And one of the situations where you might get too much neurotransmitter around is if one cell dies and bursts open and leaks all of its neurotransmitter around the cells nearby, that can lead to this kind of excitotoxicity. And that has been observed in uh, animal models, for example, of stroke. Uh, there was also some question of whether that might be one of the relevant pathophysiologies in the progression of glaucoma. Uh, there's some reason in the literature to think it might be and some reason to think it might not be. Um, but, but you were right on picking up on that, that that was a, um, you know, one of the sort of hot topics, at least for a while, in glaucoma pathophysiology. We'll end part one here and pick up at this point next time. Jeffrey Goldberg is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Walter G. Ross Distinguished Chair in Ophthalmic Research at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute and Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute in Miami, Florida. His paper, Glaucoma 2.0, Neuroprotection, Neuroregeneration, Neuroenhancement, appears in the May 2012 issue of Ophthalmology. Here's some additional information about the new ASCRS Media Center. Almost all of the 2012 ASCRS ASOA meeting was audio and video recorded, and there are now more than 1,300 sessions featuring almost 1,000 speakers available online. 
you can view the general sessions, ASCRS paper sessions, symposia, films and posters, plus select courses and ASOA sessions on business management. It's essentially the entire meeting anytime you want, and it's all available through the new ASCRS Media Center. If you attended the meeting, your Media Center access is free. If you're a current ASCRS or ASOA member but didn't attend, you can still see everything that you missed for the member price of $199. If you're not an ASCRS member, you can still purchase the Media Center, or better yet, join us and get the lower member price. To view the 2012 meeting through the Media Center, visit the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. If you're already a member, log in first and then click the Media Center link. If you're a guest, just click the Media Center link at the top of the page. From there, you can purchase the Chicago 2012 package or better yet, join the ASCRS and receive the discounted member price. Ask questions of Dr. Goldberg or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.